welcome to BrainCore, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I am Tolu Ferromika, and I'm here again today with my co-host, Christina Valcanis. Hey, Christina. Hi, Tolu. Thanks for having me back on the show. I'm super excited for today's episode because I hear we have a pretty exciting guest. Yeah. We're joined by Dr. Regan Garung, who is a professor of psychological science at Oregon State University. Welcome to the show, Regan. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you, and honored to be here. So, super chat. Thank you for joining us. So, this month of September, we're dedicating it to social psychology, and which is fitting because you're a social psychologist. Um, Yes. So I think some students might be unsure about what field they want to go into. How do you do, how was the journey to social psychology for you? Yeah, you know, um, I actually started off with a love for biology. And so the personal journey was I loved biology and, but then really uh, found myself fascinated by how our individual personalities made a difference, and then how the situations that we were in made a difference. And so, of course, social psychology really focuses on situations and how our behavior and attitudes and feelings change because of the people around us. And I just found myself really drawn to studying those kind of effects and uh, really got into it right from my senior year as an undergrad and uh, then kept doing it uh, all the many, many years since. That's actually quite nice that you've always had that interest from the start. Um, Have you ever been interested in something like sociology? You know, not. uh, I I like I enjoy reading anthropology and sociology and a lot of psychology and not just social psychology, but a lot of psychology in general is Mm -hmm. informed by anthropology and sociology. So, you know, I, I like that. But I liked the, I really resonated with the methodology of social psychology and psychology. So I still read sociology, but I love the methodology, especially the experimental uh, approach. And, you know, in social psych, you can have a, a high, an idea or a hypothesis or a research question, and you can design an experiment. And I think that's what really fascinates me is, can we design an experiment to actually show differences, you know, that whole notion about that independent variable, that that factor that we are manipulating as the researcher, that's power in answering questions that uh, I really like uh, in social psychology. Okay, yeah, I see. Um, which is nice because we're going to be discussing one of your papers. I think it would be the most recent one, actually. It's called Can Success Deflect Racism, Clothing and Perceptions of African-American Men? So I've read this article a couple times already um, because I felt like it was important um, talking about how like everyday uh, choices can influence how someone, African-American men, will be perceived. But can you just give us a rundown of how, what the experiment entailed? Yeah, absolutely. And, and your... your... And you're absolutely right in that it's a perfect example of what social psychology does, is where you have a research question and you test and see whether it makes a difference. So in this particular case, the independent variable or that that factor that I focused on was the type of clothing. And as you know, clothing can vary in in many different ways. Uh, It can be formal or it can be informal. 
And something that I've been fascinated by is how so often when you dress down, you're seen a certain way. And when you are dressed formally, you are seen a certain way. Uh, and I wanted to, to marry that, those kind of research findings with work on racism and prejudice. Uh, and I think that in this particular study, we decided, well, we know that African-American men uh, that face negative stereotypes. In, in many ways, there are many different negative stereotypes of African-American men. And we wanted to see if we could use that research on formality of dress to somehow diffuse or turn off those negative stereotypes. And I think it becomes really important because so often, and you've seen this in many uh, uh, public uh, cases, Trevon Martin, for example, in particular, you know, the wearing of the hoodie, it, it, it activates schemas in individual. And we wanted to see if we could uh, diffuse those. So in this particular study, we had three conditions. Uh, in all three conditions, we had the same four African-American men, but what they wore was different. So in one condition, they wore sweatpants and, and, uh, and sweatshirts. In one condition, they wore uh, formal clothes, uh, button-down shirts and slacks. And in the third condition, what we call the winning condition, they wore T-shirts that said Horizon League champions. Now, all four men were soccer players. The cover story was not just the cover story. It was true. Uh, that these were soccer playing athletes and the the team had actually won the this league championship. So we wondered if showing the African American men with this sign of competence, with this sign of success, if it would really downplay those negative stereotypes that we know many people have. And that's what we set out to do. And we found some success uh, across the board as predicted when seen wearing formal clothes, the men were rated as being hardworking and intelligent and trustworthy and warm. So you wear those formal clothes, you're seen as having those traits at a significantly higher level. We found some support for our hypothesis about the winning clothing. So for example, when seen wearing the winning t-shirts, those men, those, and mind you, these are exactly the same men those men were seen to be less lazy. Great, right? I mean, that's great. It diffused something. But, yeah. but unfortunately, um, that just wearing the, that winning T-shirts wasn't enough. Uh, those men were still not necessarily seen as better than when they were wearing uh, their formal clothing. So some mixed support, but clear evidence for this link between the clothing and perceptions and in this case, particularly of African-American men. And I think, as you said at the, at the beginning, especially this time, it's a really important time to look at those features that may activate schemas that people then act on. Yeah, the results were pretty interesting to me. Um, but just to, uh, to talk about the relevancy, I think after the BLM protests, uh, mm -hmm. there was a sense of like hyper visibility in the black community and so that kind of links to clothing which is why I wanted to focus on this article um but with the swagger wear like the swagger apparel that was seen as 
rated higher in intelligence and trustworthiness than those in, in winter clothing? Why would you say that is? Right. So a wonderful example of you reading the article really well. Uh, so all those of you listening, that's how you should read an article. That's exactly one of those really surprising things there, right? So my guess as to why is because that winning clothing was actually a t-shirt, right? And t-shirts are casual. So that's what I think somehow um, probably didn't have the same effect. I'm guessing that if we showed uh, the men were uh, holding a trophy or something like that, that may have been better. But by, vir- by virtue of the fact that these were just T-shirts, I think in some way they were seen as even more casual and, and you know, played with that, with that uh, activation. So, I mean, I think if you imagine, it's almost like there are these dueling stereotypes and, uh, and the, the casualness of that T-shirt seemed to have won out. So uh, that, that is exactly what we are trying to get to the heart of. And uh, this fall, we will be replicating this study both by uh, adding non, uh, n- non-black men, so we have a comp- uh, and, uh, different types of comparisons, but also changing that winning condition. We want to see if we can perfect that winning condition so that um, it probably, you know, that it that it wins out as it were across all the different categories, unlike what we saw in this particular study where it was just significant in one category. Yeah, that's fantastic that you mentioned that because we were actually when we read the article, Tolu and I, we were wondering how it could come into play if there were different races and other variables added as well. So that was actually one of our follow-up questions about what you would think the influence of having different races would be like. So we'll definitely keep our eye out for that study too. And, you know, if if I could add, if I could add, I think something really important is, you know, and I've been doing social psychology and research for a long time. um, I think it's really important in science to not downplay something because it's only one ethnic group. You know, I think yeah. uh, I think there's a big lack of research done on African-Americans and people of color. And mm-hmm. I know as with my research design hat on, my question is, yeah, it would be great to see how it would compare to Latino men or Asian men or, or white men. But I think in some ways by doing that, we are downplaying the importance of learning more about black men. And, uh, and I think we have to watch for that because I think very rarely, you know, and, and I can actually, I can tell you in many of the studies that I've read on just clothing where race is not a factor, these are studies done on just white men. And yeah. even yeah. on the limitation section, nobody says, oh, it's only white men. Yet mm-hmm. when you have a study on only black men, they go, oh, it's only black men. Well, yeah, black men are important too, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would say it's important to definitely do research on specific races, like in the isolation. Right. Because then it adds in, yeah. another variable altogether. Right. right. And I think from a research design standpoint, uh, especially when you do an experiment, it's really important to have a, a comparison group. That's what's important. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. study had two comparison groups. You know, I think... Uh, y'all are both absolutely right on thinking, yeah, it would be sort of neat to look at other variables, you know, and I think uh, other races is important, but I also think uh, other age groups. You know, I wonder about, you know, if you had, these were these were college-age students. They were, uh, actually, they were 19, 19 and 20. 
I wonder what if you had a 45-year-old man or 45-year-old men in this situation? You know, what if you had women in this situation? So I think all of those are really natural and important questions to focus on. But of course, as you know, the key in an experiment is having a good uh, comparison group. Uh, And once you have that, there's a world of of variables out there because behavior is complex. Yeah. Very true. Um, Would you say that there is an influence of the fashion industry a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you use the word swagger that we used in the article and, uh, that, you know, that that swagger and, you know, hip hop where uh, it's very, very much coming out of the fashion industry. And, uh, you know, one great example is Adidas shoes, you know, the way Adidas shoes and, you know, wearing the three stripes began, became a sign of, you know, coolness. I mean, a lot of yeah. that was driven by the fashion industry, you know. I mean, I mean, I live in Oregon, so Nike is big, but but <laughs> brand with the three stripes. Let me tell you, when you look at how Adidas very smartly went after specific basketball players and specific rappers who then wore their shoes, yeah, that automatically created a stereotype. Just, I mean, and I would bet, I haven't done this, but now I may, I bet even flashing the three stripes, you know, Adidas may probably activate some uh, some schemas. Yeah, that's true, actually. For sure, the um, media influences us. I mean, I guess that's what they do sometimes on, like, Instagram, where different brands kind of uh, project this vibe of what kind of person wears their clothing so, yeah. And what I, you know, all the way back to intro psych, and and I teach intro psych. We talk about advertising and conditioning, right? I mean, it's all about conditioning. It's all about conditioning where you associate one cue with something else. So, with enough pairings, with enough pairings of, let's say, coolness and Adidas, or coolness and Nike, or coolness and you know, you you pick it what you want. But with enough pairings, we are conditioned to see one and experience the associated feeling with the other. And I think, you know, uh, going back some years, uh, it's changed now, but, you know, Abercrombie & Fitch, for example, their advertising of, you know, uh, semi-clothed, very fit young people associated with their clothing. I mean, that was a very strong um, advertising drive that they had. And, And now, of course, a lot of that is changing as we get more aware of the dangers of sexism and racism through the media. And I think we're getting better at that. Uh, There are more ads and more commercials that are being pulled. There are even more TV shows that are being canceled or scrapped or rewritten as we've become more aware of how this kind of socialization takes place. So you're absolutely right in mentioning fashion in the media. That's where I think when you think about how does a young kid learn all this stuff, you know, um, that's where, right? It's what they're watching, what they're reading, what they're, what, you know, spinning and, and liking. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I took a media studies course, and it was very interesting to see how you kind of strengthen these associations every time you see them together. Right. I'm even thinking with the athletic clothes, like with the winter wear, perhaps that people were seeing them as athletes and then they saw the t-shirt, saw them part of the soccer team. Maybe the people ranking them had 
these associations with how athletes are portrayed in the media, like in movies and stuff, they always portray the jock as yep. like the bad guy. So that could also play a role. We have to be. See, that's great. That's wonderful because that is exactly a confounding variable there, where which is what we may have inadvertently done is activated a whole different schema, you know? So you're right on. And we didn't talk about that in detail in the paper, but that's exactly it. What what we may have ended up doing is activating a different schema, which also, you know, leads me to uh, the whole notion about that's one of the things that makes this kind of research challenging is because there are the intersections between different kinds of uh, schema, right? I mean, there's women, there's race, right? Black woman has two things going on in there. And, yeah. you know, and that's often been referred to with a very clunky word, intersectionality. But mm. I think that notion, and, and in, in, in this case, you're, no, you're, you're, you're tapping into the intersection between athlete and black, you know, and there's definitely something there to black athlete versus just athlete, you know. And then, of course, add on the former black male athlete, you know, mm-hmm. what if we did black female athlete or, you know, and so on and so forth. So. And it's in. It's interesting because even when you look at that intersection, which may be a small population, like black female athlete, there might be like a variation of people in that intersection. So it makes it even harder to to research. Absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, the, the general message for, for doing research is being aware and then to the extent that we can controlling for these you know different uh, different levels and and that's why very explicitly we only focused on men and we only focused on black because we figured let's try and nail down what's going on here and then you know test out other elements in there but you know that that's i think one of the the hallmarks of social psychology and experimentation in general which is to really try and capture and understand the phenomena in as controlled a fashion as possible um, and then introduce more variability. So, you know, where you started off with, yeah, what about white men? Yeah, but what about white women? And what about Latino men and women? And all of that. All of that yeah, is exactly. now. But you've got to start someplace to really get a handle of the phenomena. And as you could see with your wonderful comment about maybe it's an athlete schema, even before moving forward, we've got to try and tease apart the athlete's schema from the black schema, from the black mm-hmm. schema. So still some work to be done there, but that's exactly why we have a, a series of studies uh, in in different stages of, of the works. So. Um, so in terms of generalization, I know the participants were primarily European slash American women, do you think it might be interesting to have participants that are like primarily a different race or diverse? Absolutely. So this, this study was run in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and it reflected the, you know, the, that state demographics. Uh, I think it would be needed to do a study like this where there's more diversity. And I think it would be fascinating uh, and, and critical, actually, to to actually look at, um, you know, views of black men by exclusively black men. Uh, something I think that we are getting more and more aware of is 
uh, prejudice doesn't necessarily have to be a us versus them. Sometimes it's an us versus us. Yeah. Uh, I think most recently, um, the uh, you know Abraham Kindi's book, uh, How to Be Anti-Racist, does a really good job of saying, of you know, he has a whole chapter on what he calls um, ethnic racism, where you know where you have some individuals who are uh, prejudiced against members of their own race. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I am I am Indian. I was born in India, and I'm Indian American. And I know there are Indians from the north who are prejudiced against Indians from the south. You know, uh, so, oh, yeah. so it's not like oh, all Indians love each other. I mean, there's definitely some in-group stuff, uh, in-group bros, mm-hmm. but there's also in-group, uh, you know, uh, rivalry and in-group prejudice. And I think yeah. too often we try to make the world simple, but that's not how. It- that kind of connects to where I was going to go to next. I was watching your TED talk on getting psyched for the bigger picture. Uh-huh. And I think at the beginning, you told a story of how you were at a potluck in yeah. graduate school. And um, <laughs> there were other Indians there who approached you to ask if you were like in medicine or engineering. And like, I'm Nigerian. And so that sounded like a familiar question, but um. <laughs> I guess like for me, it doesn't really come to mind to ask others if they're studying medicine or engineering, just because I know other Nigerians who are studying a variety of things that don't connect to medicine or engineering. Um, but it also got me thinking about how we internalize stereotypes after they've been like heavily reinforced. So it kind of is a nice segue to our tote or term of the episode, which is implicit bias. But like, how would you define implicit bias? So, yeah, yeah, I love how you went there because that's exactly it. I mean, I think, first off, let me just say, I think we are all biased. We are all biased, you know, uh, just because uh, we may be... uh, black or Latino or Indian or Asian doesn't mean we have any more or less bias. We have all bias. And I think, uh, so implicit bias really is when we have, you know, attitudes, beliefs, maybe stereotypes that non-consciously influence our behavior towards others. Uh, and it's just, it's just a fascinating concept, you know, and I think that implicit part is key with it being, if you asked us, we may not be consciously aware Mm-hmm. But we will act in a way uh, that shows we have it. So to use your example, um, you know, there are many, uh, those Indians at that potluck, you know, when they <laughs> me, hey, what kind, of me- what kind of medicine do you do? I mean, literally, it wasn't even are you in medicine. It was what kind yeah. of medicine are you doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, I, and I think, I bet if they stop, they would go, man, I, have an, I must have an implicit stereotype that maybe asked that question. Um, and I think, we don't stop. I think we act, or maybe we don't realize that we have these non-conscious biases that the, uh, what we say, what we do, is mm-hmm. often driven by those unconscious beliefs. And so um, I think what's really important for us is to be okay with realizing that we are biased. You know, yeah. it's not a bad thing to say you're biased. It's reality. And I think you have to face it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where introspection would come in. I know for sure. When I was 
when I had my first year of university, the professor emailing us before our courses started, sending us all the readings and stuff, was signing their email, doctor, so-and-so. And the whole time I was receiving the emails, I was picturing a male professor, and I didn't even realize until the first day of school when she walked into the class that I was just being biased because it was doctor. And I was assuming that it was a male and I because I didn't have the Mr. or Miss to help yep. me make yep. that decision. And I was like, oh, just realizing my own biases in that moment. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great that's a great example. And, you know, I think uh, along those lines, there's when that person walks in, we make snap judgments based on how old or young they look, you know, and. Uh, I do a lot of research on teaching and learning, and I can tell you that in the literature, uh, women of color and people of color in general tend to get lower uh, student evaluations. And I think a large part of that is exactly this notion that we're talking about is stereotyping and prejudice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's actually interesting. I hadn't, I guess, I think I have heard of that, but... Yeah, one of my professors, she was uh, Asian, and she told us at the end of the class, when we, before we did our reviews, she was just encouraging us all to do them, and then she said, be aware of your own biases, like, right before the right. review. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I never thought of that. But they, like, whether we like it or not, we're all biased, and it does play a role in the snap decision-making that we make. And I think that, and I think that's why research comes in handy because you know first you document where the bias is taking place and then you intervene to do something about it. So, for example, based on this finding that there are uh, biases against women and against people of color, uh, some folks started uh, revising teaching evaluations so that the instructions that the students read. Uh, made them more aware of those biases. And sure enough, they found that in resulting evaluations, uh, some of those differences were, were wiped out. So I think step one is being aware, and then step two is actually doing something about it. And, you know, realizing the fact that as we get more and more tired, um, those implicit biases are more likely to, to slip in and influence mm -hmm. the behavior. Yeah, all that's very You know, it's all about cognitive load. When we're super stressed and we're super tired, we are much more likely to make a snap judgment based on a, a stereotype or implicit bias than we are if we're consciously thinking about and examining our behavior. For mm -hmm. sure. Because That's like a throwback to our first episode. We talked about heuristics and how uh -huh. usually when you're on the go or like doing something very quickly, that's when you, you're more likely to use heuristics. Right, cognitive misers and all of that, you know, I think uh, that's what makes me social psychology in particular, but psychology in general so fascinating is that, you know, there's psychology everywhere and there are some basic processes that underlie a lot of our interactions with the world. Yeah, I've read some studies too where they make people do cognitive tasks before they do the implicit bias test to see how that weighs in on their... Uh, bias coming out like the IAT yeah they do like they would do like mental math yeah before. counting back to seven yeah and then they do the task and it shows that if they're they have a higher cognitive load they're more likely to 
show their bias. Like that's yeah. really interesting research, actually. But yeah. one thing is that it came from previous research, which is how science works, right? Right. And, and you know what? And, and it's not like it's over. I mean, you mentioned the IAT. Um, I was at the University of, of Washington in Seattle when Tony Greenwald first started, you know, playing with the IAT. And he'll be the first person to tell you that uh, it's not perfect. You know, he, there are still things uh, to be worked out. There are still some issues with the IAT. It's not like you can take it as the, the you know, the end all and the be all. So absolutely huge innovation, huge advance. With as far as the you know getting at implicit attitudes go, but you know always more work, more ways that we can get those measurements better. Yeah, I, for sure. I think that's one of the disclaimers we gave in our first episode too, like to always mm, take yes. science with a grain of salt because nothing is set in stone just from one study. Mm-hmm. And and you know I, I'll tweak that a little bit because sometimes sometimes you know the grain of salt means don't pay too much attention. <laughs> yeah. um, Right, and we yeah, want yeah, you're right. Right, so so pay attention to science, but think critically about it. And I think that's my, you know, some of the things I, I say to my my intro psych students, and and I live my life is, you know, show me the data. But when somebody makes a claim, look at the data. You know, take a look at the data. What is what is it saying? Uh, there's so much research out there that doesn't make it into the. Um, th- that doesn't make it into the public sphere. You know, uh, I'll just give you a. What amused me, example, is during this pandemic, I've been doing more TV watching than I think I, I would otherwise. And uh, one of the one of the shows I watched is this Spanish this Spanish show on Netflix called Money Heist. Money uh, Heist, I love yeah, that show. Yeah. All right, right. So I, I mean, I, gosh, I don't I, I don't know how far <laughs> y'all have gone, but I will just say this: somewhere in there, for those of you who haven't watched it yet, there's a lie detector test, right? Mm. And lie detection, first off, lie detection invented by a psychologist uh, who was also the inventor of Wonder Woman. Nice little trivia if you didn't know that. But yeah, the the same person who created Wonder Woman created the lie detector, a psychologist, uh, William Moulton. But what we also know is that the lie detector is one of the most unreliable tests of whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that whole scene, I was totally distracted by oh, the lie detector. Don't put so much on the lie detector, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where, uh, that's where really critically thinking about things, both science and the things that we take for granted, is is important. I think the only downside is we don't always have the time to evaluate everything. So I always say those things that you care about, those before you invest time and money into a change, make sure you think critically about it. True. I think the issue with the IAT was that perhaps it was measuring associations as opposed to like prejudice. So it's like you or you've seen black more so with this bad term as opposed yeah. to you actually thinking that they're supposed to go together. Right. And actually, uh, you know, along those lines and, and as, you know, speaking of science always changing in the most recent uh, issue of the journal Personality and Social Psych Bulletin, there's a great article on uh, the bidirectional causal relationship between implicit stereotypes and implicit prejudice. So especially mm-hmm. since you all seem interested, you know, check that out. And just I, I just got it in the, in the mail yesterday. 
I still like getting things on paper. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's September 2020 issue of uh, PSPB. Really cool article on implicit stereotype and implicit uh, prejudice and how those things are not the same. Hmm. Maybe you can second it to us. I'll put it in the show bio so yeah. listeners can check it out as well. Sounds good. Perfect. So what would you say you're most excited for for the future of social psychology? I think... I think our methodologies are getting better. I think the emphasis on replicating a finding before uh, you make a big deal about it is is really useful. Uh, and I think that's what's exciting is that now you see better designs, you see uh, the better use of technology, and by virtue of collaboration, there's a lot more collaborating going on, uh, mm-hmm. it's easier to replicate things, I think. For the longest time, there was, you know, one study done in one place, uh, and that was it. And now, before people rush to publish it, you know, they're, they're trying to replicate it in a different lab at a different place. Uh, there's also movements such as the open science framework. Mm-hmm, uh, yeah. you know, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite excitements is, was the development of the new journal, uh, the new APS journal on research methodology. I mean, a whole journal on research methods. Uh, mm. I think that's great, great to see because automatically it forces us researchers to be more cognizant and aware of, of how well we're doing things. Uh, that that uh, that journal also pushes for replication, and uh, almost every issue there's a uh, they publish the results of a famous classic study being replicated. And it's not always, you know, business as usual. There are some insights that you get there that really help out with the design of future research. Mm. Um, so we don't have another replication crisis, basically. Right. And, and I think, you know, there, there's so much that goes into the replication crisis, right? There's, there's the, the, the hacking of statistics, there's the not knowing statistics, and then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, there's the straight-out fraud and and and... and bad dealing, then, you know, that we're, you know, we're much more watchful for that. But I think the bigger issue is the folks who uh, think they're doing the right stat, but they're not, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, stats isn't easy, right? It takes some work, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, it takes some work, and uh, I think you can mess up by not doing the right stats. Uh, I remember something, uh, one of my grad students, uh, one of my grad advisors said to me, which was, you know, a really good study is the one that needs simple statistics. Uh, mm. and, I, and, I, and I try and think of that. A well-designed study needs simple statistics. And I know that's not always the case. There are some complex designs when you have a lot of different variables. But uh, I think in this day and age, and, you know, going back to what's exciting, uh, what in this day and age, even if there's a statistic that you need that, you know you need, but you don't know how to do, uh, there are a lot of people you can collaborate with to, to help you with that. Uh, yeah. you know, so. That's true. I think when I was in a stats course, I was a little confused on a question, and then I Googled up to see if there was an answer, and I found like a bunch of forums of other researchers talking to each other, like, what kind of stats did you use for this? What kind of stats did you use for that? Um, but it's nice to see collaboration. I wouldn't want there to just be people in isolation, basically, not trying to connect and have better results. 
for things. Right. And I think sometimes there's competition between labs for grant money and all of that. But mm-hmm. I think even beyond that, there's a greater sense of, especially to avoid, as you mentioned, especially to avoid, uh, you know, egg on face with replication crises mm-hmm. or, or just wrong stuff. You know, mm-hmm. collaborating is always a good uh, uh, check. So it's a checks and balance. Now, and peer review is supposed to do, do, does do that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. hold. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't hold. So true. Um, I think we're nearing the the end here, actually. But if there's one thing you'd like the listeners to take away from your article, what would it be? I think there are there are times when I think knowing about the power of first impressions is really important. And as much as I support people, men, women, transgender, wearing whatever they want, I think being aware of the fact that others will make a snap judgment of you based on what you wear and then probably treat you based on that snap judgment, that's good information to have. Uh, I, I, you know, my goal is to, is to address the perceiver uh, like I say in the article, just because we know these findings doesn't mean we tell black men to dress better. We've got to address the perceivers and say, hey, people, here's a knee-jerk way you're reacting. That is not accurate. That is not fair. That is not right. Yeah. And basically to take the time to figure out where that reaction came from as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you... I like the way even you mentioned it, and you know when you talked about when you talked about you know Nigerians in med school. I think <laughs> all of us, right? All of us have some stereotypes, or and sometimes they're implicit. Going back to the tote, sometimes they're implicit. Sometimes they're not implicit. Sometimes they're explicit, right? Yeah. Even more reason for us to examine them and do something about it. For Very sure. True. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Brain Core Regan. I personally think we touched on some important things that are often overlooked because they happen unconsciously. Uh, but I feel like we're all thinking about it at some point, but don't know how to talk about it, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thanks. And if everyone that was listening enjoyed this episode, Stay tuned for the next episode. We're once again going to explore implicit bias, but this time we're going to explore some of the neurological aspects with a neuroscience episode. Mm -hmm. And to close off, if you have any thoughts or comments or examples of when you've experienced implicit bias, email us. It's thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again to Regan. And to our listeners, we say we're hoping that you're having a great brain day.